Welcome to the fifth episode of the DryNet podcast series, Good Food for a Better Normal. In this episode, Dr. Jonathan Davies unpacks opportunities for conservation through agriculture and the promise of agroecology and regenerative farming to mitigate species loss and climate change, transform agricultural landscapes and enhance food security. This podcast explores the complex systems that sustain life on the planet and put food on our tables challenges some of our preconceptions and shares insights about how we can do better to leave a positive legacy to future generations. We hope that you enjoy listening. If you find the podcast worthwhile, share the link with your colleagues, friends and family. Thanks for joining our podcast, Jonathan. As we know, IUCN and the wider conservation community that IUCN represents has traditionally been more vocal about threats from agriculture towards biodiversity. What's changed? And why is IUCN focusing now on the opportunities for conservation through agriculture? Um, well, I think, first of all, is we can't avoid uh, such a big subject. You know, We now have uh, more than 7.5 billion people on the planet. We're projected to reach 9 billion at least in the next few years. Um, and we know that unsustainable farming practices are not just having uh, consequences for, for people outside of farming, they're actually jeopardizing the future of farming itself. Uh, I think a growing number of farmers uh, and agricultural actors are seeing this and are, are, are raising a concern. Um, this was reflected in the the Hawaii Declaration in 2016, that was the outcome from the last World Conservation Congress, uh, which put agriculture really at the center of, um, you know, moving towards a more sustainable world. I think also we can't dodge the fact that we as a conservation sector are, are failing. We're, we're not achieving enough. Um, if you look at the performance of the agriculture sector over the past half century against its own admittedly quite narrow goals, it's doing remarkably well. You know, while the um, the, the population has increased by something like 150% over those 50 years, agricultural production globally has nearly tripled in that period of time. So on their narrow, those narrow production goals, it's doing remarkably well. Um, what we as a conservation sector haven't done so well is to actually engage constructively with the the agriculture sector on ways to 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 achieve or to balance those production goals with environmental goals but what's really changed i would say in the last well since 2015 is with the with the sustainable development goals uh, under goal 15 which is around life on land was adopted this target 15.3, which is to achieve land degradation neutrality. Now, that's something that IUCN has been very involved in, in working with the, the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification. We've supported 81 countries now to set national targets to achieve LDN uh, by 2030. And what we immediately saw in the, those very ambitious national targets was that most of the action was going to take place on agricultural land. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise because that's where a lot of the land degradation is. But what became clear was that the main actor delivering what we think of as an environmental goal is going to be the agriculture sector. And, and that helped us to identify uh, an, a common ground, an area of common interest, which is the ground itself, the land, uh, the, the farmland um, that 
determines food production, but also determines many other environmental outcomes. And so we've really started working around this concept of a common ground, an area of common interest for the agriculture and the conservation sector alike. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, we, we have very ambitious conservation goals globally. And I think what we'd be really interested to get more insight into is the extent to which agriculture can contribute to conservation outcomes. And how legitimate do you think this is? And what kind of trade-offs will be necessary with food production goals? Well, agriculture is essentially a simplified ecological system. Right? Farming depends on nature for, for nutrients, for water, for pest control, for, for pollination, for crop livestock diversity and so on. There's a long list. Um, there is a tendency to underrepresent the importance of nature in farming. Conservationists in particular often focus too much on one or other element, uh, like crop breeds, for example, or like pollinators, which are important, of course, in themselves, but then miss the bigger picture by, by, by sort of narrowing down to elements of the system. Um, and also then as a result of focusing on, on some of these elements, they haven't really resonated strongly with farmers. Now, I think the bigger picture is the land as a whole, um, the farmland and the wider farming landscape. I think all farmers are, are, are acutely aware of the, this concept of land health. Now, their land is their, their business, their livelihood. One of the, the best indicators of land health is soil biodiversity. Right? There's a staggering array of biodiversity in the soil, billions of organisms. You know, a single handful of soil can contain over a billion microscopic organisms and thousands of different species. And so when farmers are protecting land health, they are conserving biodiversity. And the trouble is that as conservationists, we're not very good at, at really measuring or monitoring this. We don't really know enough about what's going on down there, about that incredible diversity and how that biodiversity in the soil then determines the way ecosystems function more generally. Now, not all farming practices conserve soil biodiversity equally, of course, and that's why we need better knowledge, we need better monitoring, um, and eventually we'll need to rethink a little bit the goals of farming so that land health gets more attention. And, and I think this is something that many farmers themselves are interested in. So we need to look at the maybe distorting incentives and the policies that uh, actually disable farmers from, from maintaining land health. Well, sustainable farming, first of all, obviously takes place at the farm level in the fields and on pastures, for example, but it also takes place at the landscape scale. Um, farmers, farming communities uh, retain woodlands, um, grasslands, wetlands, and so on. It takes collective action as well as this sort of more individual action at the farm level. Farmers themselves can benefit from this through you know, improved soil fertility or improved soil moisture, water supply, or maybe through reduction of risks, you know, reducing the risk of floods or droughts and so on. But society can also benefit, especially when this is taking place on a large scale on many farms, as well as in the wider farming landscape. An easy example that most people will be familiar with is the regulation of water supply and water quality. You know, the farming practices can have a big impact, impact on that, it can influence climate regulation. It creates recreational space. Many countries, um, there are schemes to help farmers maintain uh, recreational space, which people from outside the, the farming community can enjoy. Um, and I think also we should look a bit more also at the quality of food. This is really becoming a 
global concern in light of this the, the, the obesity crisis, the need for more healthy food, more healthy eating habits. And there are definitely clear linkages to that, that we can get through more sustainable farming, more diverse uh, farming systems. Well, Jonathan, if the benefits to farmers are so obvious, what do you think is holding farmers back from switching to more sustainable practices? If, as you say, it's actually in their interest. Well, we first of all have to say that, you know, we know kind of what the solutions are because farmers are doing it, right? So there are farmers that are innovating, uh, that are perhaps taking more risk, uh, demonstrating sustainable practices, sometimes on quite a large scale, often on quite a commercial scale too. Um, So I don't think the question is really so much about what works. Uh, I think the question is more, how do we quickly now move to scale? Uh, I think there are quite a number of factors that can be looked at here. Um, Sometimes there are questions around understanding and and awareness. So we can work with farmers to raise awareness of why a different approach is in their interest, an approach that they may not be so familiar with. I think in general, a lot of farmers do know this. in a number of countries, some of the sustainable practices we want to promote, actually farmers themselves evolved over many years and they've abandoned them due to different factors, but are quite aware that those are practices that bring benefits. Um, Sometimes we may need to develop knowledge and capacity on on the new techniques um, or how to upgrade some traditional practices. In some cases, farmers might need access to new resources. They might need new seed varieties. They might need new machinery, new field treatments. Um, There are some places where farmers also need to have the freedom or the the right to to, to change their land use. It's, It's not always a simple case for farmers uh, they might uh, not be allowed to or there might be risks involved in you know changing land practices and then losing their their land um, I think risk in general is probably the, the biggest factor because there are risks or we could say perceived risks um, associated with transitioning to uh, what can sometimes be quite a different approach to farming um, you know farming is a risky business uh, farmers face a lot of volatility from the environment, from markets, and so on. Uh, and so, ch- changing the way they produce and changing what they produce, of course, it comes with with risks. I'll give you an example. Uh, I was reading about the other day in the newspapers from the United Kingdom, where uh, a farmer had, on his own, spontaneously uh, adopted zero tillage because he he had seen that his soil, his land health, his soil biodiversity was really depleted. He stopped. He, you know, mechanical plowing of his field, and in the first few years, he saw a decline in production, but also a decline in input costs. But it took him seven years to get to a, a higher level of profitability. So he returned to somewhere close to his original production levels with the lower production costs. That took seven years. So for if we want lots of farmers to do that, we need to think how can we bridge that seven year, whatever that gap is, to get from the new system to to offset the risk of transitioning to um, a, a whole new approach. It's clearly important to help farmers to move through that seven year or, or whatever, however long it takes to go from current practices to, to more regenerative approaches. Um, how do you think we move from successful pilots that depend on inputs and support from projects, particularly in countries in Africa, to achieve large scale adoption that can really transform agricultural landscapes and even transform global food systems? So, I mean, the example I gave, um, there was a seven-year transition. It, it, it's quite variable. It's not always that long. 
I think there are cases, and I've certainly seen many cases in Africa where uh, productivity of land has declined quite dramatically over a few years due because the practices that have been adopted are quite unsustainable. So actually there, sometimes the practices that if you look at agroforestry, for example, and farmer-managed natural regeneration of trees in farming in farmlands, that doesn't necessarily imply any cost. I mean, so we should certainly look at simple, low-hanging fruits, opportunities and practices that don't imply significant risks, and actually, which many farmers are, are quite keen to adopt. Um, but having said that, I mean, it, it's a bigger question than that. Certainly, uh, if we want to look at the, the transforming global or even national food systems. I think we have to work with investors and, and farmers above all. They have to be convinced. We often find that policies are working against what we're trying to achieve. But if we want to influence policy, uh, we're going to be much better off if we're doing it uh, together with the big players as well as the farmers. And I think so that, that consensus building, that's certainly an important part of IUCN's work right now to sort of find where this common ground is and, and make sure that we're really building consensus there. I think globally, you know, the elephant in the room surely has to be public subsidies to agriculture. Uh, they were a staggering $700 billion last year, right? That's about a third of the entire GDP of, of Africa. So we're really up against it. Now, currently, quite a lot of that uh, subsidy is production oriented. So reducing the cost of inputs like fertilizer and fuel, machinery, chemical treatments, and they serve a purpose and uh, farmers benefit from those subsidies, certainly. But I think we need to look more carefully at how we could redirect uh, part of this subsidy towards incentivizing more sustainable farming practices, explicitly to capture these multiple benefits to society. I would sort of phrase this as moving away from the current emphasis, which is food, fiber, fuel, and other products, to more of a focus on production, water, climate, and nature, and, and other services. So it's sort of reorienting the goals of agriculture. Of course, that you know, clearly requires the buy-in of all the actors in the agriculture sector. Um, but you know, it really needs that major shift in emphasis to recognize, and ultimately it comes down to thinking about land and farmland as something that's producing a lot more than just uh, agricultural product. And therefore we need to value and incentivize these other services, these co-benefits, if you like, uh, and work with farmers to play their role as stewards of, of those farming landscapes. I think perhaps the first thing is to remember that farmers are stewards of the environment. Agriculture, if you look at all the different forms of agriculture, it occupies about 40% of all the land on earth. Okay, two thirds of that is, is grassland and shrubland that's used for extensive livestock. But you're still left with about 15% of all the land on earth, which is used for crop farming. Um, we have to stop thinking of that in a purely antagonistic way as something that is a threat to nature. And I actually see agriculture can and really should uh, become a, a, a critical element of conservation. Now, obviously, that requires us to think about conservation quite broadly. Farmers are not going to be conserving lions and elephants and tigers and pandas, right? That's uh, going to take place on other land. But if we broaden our understanding of conservation and broaden our understanding of what is biodiversity in agriculture, we can see really what the, the conservation benefits are. Um, that's really the coming together of, of agriculture and conservation um, to start identifying the environmental goals that, that, that farmers contribute to. And then once we recognize them, then we can start exploring 
the incentives and the, the, the ways to make sure that farmers uh, are rewarded for providing essentially a, a public service, a public good. I think we are long overdue to start having serious dialogue and not just dialogue for the sake of talking, but dialogue for the sake of action with all of the multitude of actors in the agriculture sector, but particularly those who are um, who share our way of thinking about management of uh, agricultural environments uh, and protecting the long-term viability of farming. I think there's a growing number of champions in the agriculture sector. Uh, and so we now need to be working in strong alliances between champions of environment in agriculture, champions of sustainable agriculture in the environmental movement, um, and then working with governments to really push this to the top of the development agenda. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I think you've given us a lot of food for thought, and uh, we wish you all success with your ongoing work at IUCN. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DryNet podcast series, Good Food for a Better Normal. We hope that you've found the inspiration to reinvent the ways in which we care for the land and produce, distribute and consume food. In the next episode, Dr. Mariam Akhtar-Schuster, senior scientist with the Project Management Agency of the German Aerospace Center, explains the relevance of the Rio Conventions in addressing current crises and how they support appropriate local actions that can enhance the well-being of vulnerable farming communities in the global drylands. This podcast series is brought to you by DryNet. DryNet is a network of civil society organizations on four continents that work with local dryland communities to support their endeavors to use land-based resources in the most sustainable way possible. The network and its members promote the concerns of land-based communities in national and international discourse on environmental governance. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please share the link with your colleagues, friends and family.